Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined remotely, as always these days, by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Cash, what's going on, man? Not much. Have you ever thought about how surreal it'll be the day uh, one of us gets to say, and I'm joined in studio? I mean, it'll be great. I don't know <laughs> when that's going to happen, if ever again, but that will truly be a glorious day. Uh, for now... We've kind of we, we got a decent setup here where we have a little uh, Google video chat going, so I can see your face and your incredibly lustrous locks. <laughs> I know. I guess most most of our listeners probably have some idea of what you look like. I mean, you, you usually keep the fade pretty tight. I do. And I just I wish they could see you now because uh, the the head of hair that you've grown is truly glorious. <laughs> what, what what kind of product are you using, man? If I had a dollar for every time someone asked me this, no, uh, it, there's no product in it, man. This is the natural flow. I don't believe it. <laughs> yep. I can't believe it. The shine is just unbelievable. Yeah. Anyway, so that's about where we're at. I myself have somehow regrown a pretty ridiculous Jufro. This is how I used to rock my hair when I was like 15, 16 years old. I would basically just grow it out until it collapsed. And it's getting to be on the verge of collapse, I think, at this point in time. But it's still holding up and, and maintaining its shape for the time being. If yours gets any longer, you're going to have like the uh, 80s hockey style curly mullet. <laughs> yeah, the jerry curl. Yeah. That's how I used to know when it was time to get a cut, when, when it couldn't uh, stand up on its own anymore. But in other news, we recorded a pod last week in which we sort of discussed what seemed like some burbling tension within the player ranks about the NBA's return plan. And at that point in time, I mean, so, so we released that shortly before word came out about the call that Kyrie Irving organized with players to talk about whether or not it was a good idea to return to play. And since then, the NBA has also released this 113-page uh, health and safety manual that sorry just to interrupt that nba reporters are trying to uh unveil in one hundred and thirteen thousand tweets yeah it's been I, I mean i think we've spent the better part of the last couple of days just trying to consolidate all of that information yeah. and and gather some thoughts on that and also on on the conversation that's going on within the player ranks and i feel like maybe uh the latter point is where we should start because to me, that seems like the more, in a lot of ways, like the more complicated issue and the one that is maybe more pressing right now, as much as obviously like the health and safety of all the NBA and Disney personnel that are theoretically going to be inside this bubble is super important. I'm just a little bit more interested in, in the conversation that's going on amongst the players in the league. So, I mean, wh- where do you want to start with that cash? We, we can talk about the, the call that Kyrie apparently orchestrated, uh, the players who have come out, and, and not necessarily having said that they don't think that players should play, but sort of just expressing their concerns with with returning to play in the bubble environment and the potential distraction that that would be from what's going on in the streets. Uh, Avery Bradley put out a strong statement to that effect. Dwight Howard, somewhat unexpectedly, I think, has been at the forefront of this as well um what do you think about about what's going on cash i think a lot of things um look i you know uh, you know based on the couple years we've been doing this podcast how many times i've ripped kyrie irving 
and uh, I do. Uh, you know, usually going back to his flat Earth comments, and I've I've even said that. I, I mean, I usually said it from like a basketball perspective, but I really used to say I don't care what Kyrie Irving says. Like, I'm not listening to that guy because of how ridiculous he is. This is obviously a different scenario. So it's I think it's a very complex thing because, like it or not, Kyrie in the past, and I'll talk about right now, Kyrie has not done himself any favors in terms of growing his audience. Let's just say that. In the for the most part, over the last couple of years, he's alienated people as opposed to growing his own platform and his audience. Having said that, I completely agree with everyone who makes the point that right now, given how important this is, you know, the, the classic line is it's the message, not the messenger. And I'm 100% on board with that. I think as, um, you know, you say what you want about the fact he didn't bring up enough concerns, I guess, when when the team reps and the executive committee of the PA were voting on this. But the point is, at some point, whether he changes mind, which is completely understandable, whether he got word from players who felt they were unheard um, and and had things to say, also completely understandable. Whatever the case may be, at some point, Kyrie Irving realized that there was a contingent of players who were either uncomfortable playing, wanted more details, uh, maybe didn't feel safe, thought it was distracting from a very important social movement. And Kyrie, as a VP of the NBPA, stepped up, um, organized a group, and helped those players become heard and and be able to share their thoughts. So in that case, all the credit to Kyrie. I think people need to realize, regardless of what he's said or done in the past, in this case, he's doing his job. And he's literally giving a voice to players who felt they didn't have a voice. And I'm completely on board with that. But it is still complex. Because as much as I 100% believe that it's the message that's important right now, not the messenger... I also think that when the message is this important, it would be a little better served, at least, if the person leading the charge was not not more liked, but more maybe more relatable for with other players. Because like the the one thing is, I'm not talking about media right now. Like, who cares about us and what we think about um, the player association, the way things are going down? But like I can tell you for a fact that yes, while there are plenty of players who uh, like Kyrie and will listen to him no matter what, but there are plenty of players okay that are also rolling their eyes when Kyrie speaks. That's not just like a media thing. It's not some created thing that we came up with because he said the Earth is flat. So while I think he he's doing his job by doing what he's doing, I do think it maybe would have been better served, unfortunately, if it was someone else saying it because I think another person would have had more of the players' trust in a way. And, you know, even you see, like, the, you mentioned Avery Bradley. If you see the way uh, Avery Bradley's quotes were in that column with Woj, who, by the way, Woj, you know, it was problematic that he wrote that column calling Kyrie the disruptor when two days later he came back and said, whoa, it actually turns out he's representing more of the play. Like, you got to know that. But I thought Avery Bradley's quotes in that Woj piece were really great. You know, Dwight Howard, who, again, is not a guy anyone would have expected as, like, kind of this leader of the unheard. Uh, he put out that statement, which is pretty powerful. and also. I think there's some reading between the lines to be done in Dwight's statement as well when he talks about how, yes, there are leaders that are supposed to be doing this, but sometimes the leaders look out for their own, uh, like, I don't know, was it was he hinting at the owners? Because I think we know who he might have been hinting at there, like perhaps the, the players in power in the league and maybe one big right. one on his own team. So I, I just think there are so many thoughts on it. Like I, I don't have one overarching thought on it because I think it's like a very complex, unique issue. 
I think, okay, so last episode, I sort of framed this as potentially a debate between the like superstar players whose voices carry the most weight and the kind of rank and file players in the union whose priorities may sometimes be at odds with those superstar players. And I actually don't think that I quite hit the mark with that because I think there are a lot of different factions and it crosses lines, you know, between superstars and role players. And I think sort of what helped me see that in a lot of ways was uh, what Ed Davis said about this, which is that, Mm -hmm. you know, for him, a player like Kyrie, it's kind of easy for him to say, no, we shouldn't go when he is financially set in a way that a lot of the, the league's middle class or, you know, guys who are playing on veteran minimum contracts essentially are not. And I, I think that is a fair consideration as well. And like a lot of the players we've seen speaking up saying that they want to play and they think it's important that the players go and play aren't superstars. It's It's been Ed Davis, Austin Rivers, Garrett Temple, and... I think, you know, their message in a lot of ways has been financially motivated, but I don't necessarily think that that makes it less important either. Um, You know, Ed Davis talked about how there's an opportunity for these players to recoup a large chunk of their salaries, and that's money that they can be diverting to the cause. Uh, He also talked about this idea of like creating generational wealth. And I I mean, like this also just is going to have ripple effects, you know, not just for this season, but like for next season as well. And the possibility of owners, you know, ripping up the CBA and then drawing like a, a hard line in negotiations for a new deal that might be even less favorable to players than the current one is. Uh, the, the revenue stream, you know, not just for this year, but like how that affects the salary cap for next year and beyond. There are a lot of financial considerations here, and I don't think we should just brush those aside and think that they aren't important. Yeah, I was going to say, um, to your point, like, and it's something I've been talking about a lot this week, is I think the one thing people forget a lot when they talk about like little squabbles in the PA, or even this case right now, where there seem to be these like pretty big differences in opinion, is that the NBPA and the NBA in general, it's 450 players, um, 450 different human beings who have different interests, different passions, um, different levels of competitiveness, different beliefs off the court, a extremely wide range of salaries between those 450 and a very varying um, set of intentions based on all of those human factors that I just listed. And so I I just think that people forget that a lot of times, right? And, And they're looking for this uniformity you know, uniformity when it comes to CBA negotiations is one thing. That's hard enough. But expecting uniformity when we're talking about social justice issues and we're talking about, you know, uh, how comfortable you are with the health and safety precautions going back to work in the middle of a global pandemic, like those are things you're not going to get uniformity on those, you know? And so I think that's another thing people have to understand because I've seen a lot of like, well, you know, Kyrie said he's speaking for the players, but then look how many players are against them. It's like, yeah, that doesn't mean though that Kyrie's not still speaking for players. Kyrie is speaking for a set of players. It sounds like a pretty big group of players. So the fact that a bunch of others don't agree with him doesn't mean he's not speaking for players. And at the same time, the ones that do want to play for whatever reason it might be, you know, it doesn't mean that 
they are not sympathetic or listening to Kyrie's case. And I just think that's something that's lost on, on so many people. And they think about this, like there's 450 people here. They're not going to all think the same way. And it's okay that they don't, um, you know, as long as obviously they believe in the, the basic tenets of like human rights and, and what all this is about. But in terms of how they go about managing it and getting back to work, they're not all going to think the same. Right. And, and the last thing I'll mention on Kyrie too, just cause I, I don't want anyone to get it twisted when I said I, I do think at the while I believe in his message, I do think that the better the messenger, the better it is for the message and getting it to the most amount of people. I do also want to stress that the whole, you know, the two of us, everyone on social media has been saying throughout this whole thing that um, throughout the protests over the last few weeks that like it's time, uh, it's time to listen you know, and amplify black voices and listen and um, really takes the start. So I, I don't want those words to get twisted at all. Like at the end of the day, um, whatever you think of Kyrie Irving, uh, this is a young black man now talking about how he thinks um, him and his peers can go about affecting change. And so regardless of what you think of the messenger, if you're going to stay true to what you've been preaching the last few weeks, it is time to listen. And I don't want, I don't want, you know, me saying that the better the messenger would serve the message better i don't want that being twisted into thinking that i'm not listening yeah i 100 percent agree with that and i 100 percent agree with what you were saying about this not being binary you know and this idea of should we go should we not go it feels like a bit of a false choice in a way and i think like there are many legitimate reasons to want to play and many legitimate reasons to not want to play and so ultimately it's just going to be up to the players individually to decide. I don't think they should be judged either way. I do wish that anyone who decided not to go for any one of the many legitimate reasons that there are for a player to not want to go was going to be paid out for the games missed as opposed to, I believe it's for every, for every game, they're going to lose one ninety second, one ninety second. Does that, does that sound right? Yeah, it's it's um, there's I think it's even more it's like one out of ninety two point something. Ninety two point six. Yeah. But yeah, six yeah. One to ninety second point six. I don't know how you would say it in a fraction standpoint, of, but let's just say one ninety second. Right. Um and that's that's up to fourteen games played, which it, so even if a, a team uh plays more than fourteen games, it'll only be up to fourteen games that, that they'll lose in terms of, of salary. I mean, I, w- I wish that wasn't the case right. because I do think there are just so many legitimate reasons to be wary of this and to want to stay home that I sort of feel like the league should take care of all of those players. And I mean, we talked briefly on the last episode about LaMarcus Aldridge and him deciding to undergo surgery, right? And yeah. as I understand it, if a player has a legitimate medical reason for not going into the bubble, they're going to get paid out for the missed games. Whereas if a player, like they're going to undergo testing, their medical histories are being reviewed. And if they're essentially cleared to play and decide not to, that's when they start to get docked pay for games missed. So I sort of wish that everybody could kind of fall under the same umbrella because I think everybody's health and safety is essentially at risk here. But apart from that, I think think players are going to make the decision that they feel like is best for them. And I think that's totally fine. And and uh, I don't think we should hold it against anybody for sitting out. I don't think we should hold it against anybody for wanting to play. I don't think we should hold it against any of them for pushing that message and trying to get their peers on board one way or another. And I'm, 
I guess I'm interested in this idea of like players having a platform and that, you know, that platform being, being larger if they go and play in Orlando than if they don't and the ability to use that platform to kind of get their message out and affect change. And I just don't know exactly what that means or what that looks like, because I, I sort of feel like at least part of this most recent wave of civil unrest is this idea that words and symbols and imagery as powerful as that can be like on their own, those things aren't really enough. And I think right now the focus is on being actionable and, you know, taking measures to actually affect change outside. Like, look, those symbols can be really powerful, right? Like obviously we all remember Kaepernick kneeling and we remember LeBron in the heat taking that photo wearing the hoodies after Trayvon Martin was murdered. And we remember all, you know, those NBA players wearing the I can't breathe warm up t-shirts after Eric Garner was murdered. And we remember, you know, Tommy Smith and John Carlos throwing up the black power salute on the Olympic podium in 68, with which um, Michelle Roberts actually alluded to when she was talking to ESPN saying, well, like they actually had to participate right. to, to get on the podium, to make that stand to get on the podium to actually. But, and so like we, we remember all those symbols and those images, they're seared into our brains. And yet, you know, all these years later, this shit is still happening, Like Black people are still being killed by police with impunity and all the structures of systemic racism, you know, still exist. And so is, you know, is, is there a limit to that? And, and like as much as the players having this platform and an ability to put those symbols and those words and their messages out there, at the end of the day, like they're, they're going to be at a literal physical remove from what's going on. And I think maybe that's part of the issue, right? It's not just about them playing basketball, but like they're literally going to be physically alienated from the protests that are going on in a bubble on their own. And as much as like, there's going to be an element of visibility that comes along with that because they're going to be playing in games that are presumably going to be watched by millions of people. I, I do feel like maybe that's part of their concern as well. And, and I think it's an important thing to consider is like how that will impact their ability to actually be part of this movement. Yeah, I think all that's fair. I think, um, you know, and I don't disagree with any of that, but then I guess, you know, for the, the players that are on the other side that, that want to play, they might say like, what, if we don't play, what could we do that? What, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I think for the most, there's been a lot of players that have marched and have protested, and that's been great. But I, I don't think the players have been out there every day the way some protesters have been. And, and all the power and respect and admiration, quite frankly, to those protesters have been going out every single day to affect change. I don't think the players that have marched have been doing that. You know, like, I don't think, I don't think it's that if they don't go play in Orlando, they're going to be on the ground every day, right? And right. and I would hope that they are looking at ways they can affect change while in the bubble. And I don't just mean by the the stands they could take on the court or the images that could come out of it. I mean like actionable change. Like are, I hope they're looking at things like, you know, last week we talked about LeBron's leadership and the more than a vote initiative that he's organizing to fight voter suppression and, and educate people about voter suppression and, and make as many people able to vote, vote as possible. Like, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know enough. Could... Like, is something like that something he would not have been able to do 
if they were playing. Maybe I, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but that's just an example I'm saying where like, I, I honestly don't think we know enough where we could say one way or the other. And I think maybe that's kind of what you were alluding to is like, there's all these images, but did they really do anything? But at the same time, if they don't go, are they at any more of a disadvantage in terms of accomplishing things? Like there's so many, um, uh, not confusing, but like there's so many um, complex arguments here, right? Because I know another big one among the players and in that group, like Kyrie Irving and Avery Bradley and Dwight Howard are a part of, and you've seen, I think Lou Williams has tweeted about it. Steven Jackson, obviously he was no longer active, but I was friends with George Floyd. And a lot of them have been talking about the fact, like it's just not the best idea to go back to this league where you have a majority um, black contingent of players going to work in dangerous situations, given the health and safety concerns to make money for white owners. And, and those players have said that, right. And that like, think about that given what we're fighting for right now. And I completely understand that. But then again, you can't just look at that side because you've got Ed Davis saying, well, that's easy for you to say with your hundred million dollars banked away. Like what about, uh, what about the player who's like the ninth man right now on one of those teams fighting for the eighth, like maybe making a couple mil and it's his first, this is his first NBA contract at all. And maybe this is going to be the difference between whether he gets a second contract or not. And like you said, creates that generational wealth. So I just, again, I just bring it back to the fact that there's so many different opinions among that group of 450 players. And even among the players going to the 22 team bubble that I just don't think it's right for anyone to to say, okay, this group of players is right. Everyone follow them or like, no, no, this group of players is right. And what these guys are saying is BS and don't listen to them. Like it, you have to listen to both sides and you have to let this group come to their own decision. You know what I mean? If you truly want to empower them and amplify their voices and, and listen, now's the time to listen, then, then listen, let them come to a conclusion themselves. And, and yeah, there's going to be some, it sounds like that are not going to play and that'll be a stand in its own right. For sure. And I think to your point, I mean, like these guys, they are basketball players. That is their job. And, uh, you know, uh, we don't have this expectation for, you know, any other segment of the workforce to quit their jobs and commit themselves full time to fight for this movement. Like everybody still has jobs to do. And like, you know, for the time being, we still live in this capitalist system where that is what we have to do. That is what we have to reckon with. Like we have to do our jobs to make money, to support ourselves and our families. And I think, look, like could LeBron James accomplish more and make more progress with his more than a vote initiative, for example, if he wasn't spending the majority of his time practicing and studying game tape and playing games? Yeah, like probably, but is LeBron going to quit basketball to become a full-time activist? Like probably not. And I don't think that that should be the expectation for him. And I think, you know, so the timing is part of, I guess, what's at issue here for a lot of these players. But when does that timing stop being an issue? Because this is not, this thing is not going to be over in like a matter of a few weeks or a few months. Like this is an ongoing process that, I think we both hope is going to continue and is actually going to affect change in the long term. But if that's going to happen, it's going to take a really long time and it's going to take continued pressure and continued protest. And so in the meantime, to ask these basketball players to not play basketball, you know, even under less than ideal circumstances, I don't think would be fair. So 
I guess, you know, that's all a very long winded way of saying, and I think I speak for both of us when I say this, the, the decision completely rests with the players. And I think, you know, we both fully understand it from either side. Mm-hmm. And I would hope that the vast majority of NBA fans, as much as they may want to see the NBA come back, uh, would see things the same way. Yeah. And then just the last thing on your point, you know, you mentioned we live in a capitalist society. Like this is something I know I've said a lot um, over the course of the the shutdown, even earlier in the shutdown, when we talked about whether the league would come back or not. And like, you know, it, you can, you can think it's a cynical point of view if you want, but ba- like you said, based on the uh, society we live in right now, okay, in a capitalist society, money makes the world go round. And again, I just go back, there was, there's a lot of people that just kind of uh, think, well, I should have canceled the season. They should, like, it's, it's not that easy, you know? And I, I, I think people know that for the most part, but I think there are some that still like don't realize that. And they think it's as easy as just saying, well, you know, gave it a shot, cancel the see, Like it's not. And you, you, whether you look at the fact that that would probably result in a CBA being ripped up and potentially a year and a half without basketball or a really, really ugly labor dispute that would not work out well for the players this time. Like um, you can talk about the long-term ramifications for the NBA in general, if there's a lockout right now, given the amount of revenue already lost. Again, I understand that it seems cynical to even talk about that. So I've given the much more important issues in society right now than a basketball league. But for those 450 players, especially for the ones in the lower tiers that rely on that basketball league to uh, maintain the living that they have and, and uh, the quality of life that they have, like that would be a massive blow to them. And and so again, like don't fault players for for thinking they need to play and, and don't, you know, yeah. Does it suck that the owners have the leverage because they're billionaires and the player? It does. But unfortunately that is the way it is. So like, what did you expect is, is kind of what I'm saying. Like, did you really expect the owners to be like, all right, we'll take, you know, we'll take a few hundred million dollars on the chin. Like what is like, You know, that wasn't going to be the case. So these people that are yeah. still going on about the fact, like just cancel it. Like, you, you know, that's not happening. Move, we have to move past that. <laughs> At this point, unfortunately, I'm not saying it's the right thing. I'm just saying we have to move past that at this point. And I do think, uh, and I feel like this was sort of like Avery Bradley sort of hinted at Mm -hmm. this, but, but maybe, you know, one thing that the players can do is exert some measure of pressure on the ownership class to actually get involved and donate their resources toward these causes as well. You know, whether that means like investing in black owned businesses or, you know, donating money to the black lives matter movement. You know, I do think as much as overall, I agree that the owners like have the leverage in most of these negotiations, like the players are still the product here. And I think in this situation, they have a bit of leverage themselves. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the NBA PA put out a statement uh, talking about, you know, their continued commitment to fighting for social justice, to matching uh, players' donations for philanthropic causes. And in that statement, um, they talked about their expectation that team owners would do the same. And I think that's a message that, you know, when we talk about this platform that the players have, if they are in Orlando being vocal about the fact that they want their owners 
to be more involved in this fight, then I think that is actually a powerful message that could carry some water. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I loved, I loved that Avery Bradley essentially called out the owners. And and that's why I, I brought him up when I said like it, that um, interview he did with Woj was amazing because he, yeah, he essentially called the owners out and said, why does it have to fall on the players um, who make less money to always affect change? And why does the burden to lift up their own community only fall on them when you've got these billionaire owners there that claim that they support them and stand with them? So I love that. And yeah, those guys should be emptying their pockets more to help their players. All right. So should we maybe move on and talk about this actual health and safety manual? Yeah. Can, can, I, bring up one more, can I bring up one more thing before we move on? Just Absolutely. that, um, the, again, and I know like the, the surrounding issue around this is a very serious issue, but I'm hoping we all got at least a chuckle out of Kyrie leaving the group chat. <laughs> again again well aware that what the, the, the cause that he's fighting for no laughing matter and if someone actually made something up also no laughing matter but i do you want to just give like a quick primer on yes yeah, so it, it, yeah in case no one knows what the hell i'm talking about um uh, i believe it was uh stefan bond yeah, yeah. yeah in new york reported that in the net team group chat Kyrie was trying to convince the team not to go to Orlando and also had brought up the idea of a player's own league, starting their own league, which first of all, as much as everyone makes fun of Kyrie about, and I don't think it's possible, at least not right now, I don't think he should be shit on for having that idea. I think it's a grand idea and it's, you should have grand ideas. So I don't, I don't think anyone should be shitting on him for that. It might, you could be like, oh, that's so Kyrie, but that I don't think should be like held against them. Now, the logistics of it, different matter, but anyway. So that report comes out and then within a few hours, I believe it was Taylor Rooks who came out and said, um, based on her reporting, she had sources telling her someone within the net said, it's not true that Kyrie was trying to tell them not to go. It's not true that he proposed starting his own league. And also he was so upset that this quote unquote fake news had gone out there that he left the group chat. And if that isn't 2020 in a nutshell. This is not really related to that, but I do think, I mean, whether or not Kyrie was pushing for players to start their own league and, and you know, leaving aside the logistics and the feasibility of doing something like that, I, I do like this idea of these players who are fighting for something that is totally antithetical to what a lot of these owners support. Like a lot of these owners are are Trump donors. Yeah, didn't uh, didn't Tillman Fertitta just just give two two hundred dollars to exactly Donald J Trump say. for president twenty twenty? Yeah, I don't know who it who it was who actually like unearthed because those donations are a matter of public record, right. and so I saw it bouncing around. And again, I don't know who unearthed it, but yeah, Tillman Fertitta giving two hundred dollars to Donald Trump. That's all he had like left in his savings. Of both the moral and quite possibly financial bankruptcy of, of that human being. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty ridiculous. Um, he's the Virgil Abloh of NBA owners. I don't know what that means. Oh, he's the Virgil Abloh is the creative director of Louis Vuitton, and he's the first black man to be the creative director of Louis Vuitton. Um, he start he's the guy who started Off White, the company Off White that does a lot with like Jordan Brand. Anyway. Uh, he went viral a couple weeks ago, not for good reasons, because I think he donated fifty dollars to the Black Lives Matter. I don't know. If, I don't remember if it was Black Lives Matter, the Minnesota Freedom Fund, like one of those causes. He donated fifty dollars 
And this is the creative director of Louis Vuitton. Right. So it's kind of become a, a running joke since then that like anytime a rich guy donates a little bit. Another like funny thing right now is instead of saying keep it 100, people are saying keep it two Virgils. Yeah. <laughs> now, now we can say I've keep it, it, keep it a half for Tita. <laughs> What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Anyway, okay, with that, <laughs> with all that in the rear view, do you want to talk about uh, this 113-page health and safety manual? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing we should mention off the top there is that while most of the world is seeing cases decrease, I think other than South America and plateau and the curve has been flattened in a lot of places, the United States is just plateauing before it's even dipped. Uh, there's a lot of trouble there in Florida, especially, I believe the last two days have been the highest daily increases in COVID positive cases in Florida since the pandemic began. Uh, I went and looked a couple days ago <clears throat> at Collier County, Florida, because, you know, for anyone familiar with the restart plan, because the Raptors play in Canada and there would be too much, uh, they'd have to quarantine for too long if they came from where they're coming from, stayed in Canada, that went to Florida. So the Raptors are just meeting in Florida, but they're meeting in Naples, Florida. They're going to practice at Florida Gulf Coast University. And I think they're staying in Naples for like a week or so until they go to Orlando. Well, a county where Naples, Florida is two days ago had their worst day of new positives, uh, I think in like two months. So now they've had a couple days where it's gone down, but like that's just an example of the first team that's going to arrive in Florida is going to a spot where the curve is going up and then they're going to go and meet the rest of the teams in a spot where the curve is going up. So you want to talk about that 113 page health and safety booklet? Just first of all, uh, yeah, it's going to be badly needed because Florida's a cesspool right now. I mean, yeah. And I feel like that concern, I suppose, mostly applies to the Disney employees who are going to be coming and going in and out of the bubble. Because the players, it's like once they're there and they're sequestered in, you know, in, in this complex within Disney World um, and the ESPN wide world of sports, it, it doesn't necessarily matter what's going on outside of that, right? Because it's not it's a bubble but of course you have uh, these disney employees who are not going to be living inside of this bubble like the players are um you know they're going to be going home to their families at night and doing who knows what in um the outside world where this virus is exploding and you make them sound like men and women of mystery (laughs) i'm not i'm not like it's no, just, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I'm just saying the NBA doesn't have any control right. over what those people are doing when they're outside of the bubble. They're not going to be wearing ankle bracelets. Like they're they're going to be living their lives, and some of them may be taking social distancing extremely seriously and taking every possible precaution to make sure that they're not bringing that virus into the bubble. 
and some of them may not. And I'm sure there's going to be a set of guidelines for them as well to try and ensure that they're being safe and that they're not going to bring the virus in. But it just seems inevitable somebody within this quote-unquote campus environment is going to test positive. And I think, you know, for all the information that came out of this health and safety manual, it, it still doesn't seem clear what the breaking point is, what is going to constitute an outbreak. You know, if it's four players, it's five players, it's six players on the same team, that part is still, and, and I don't know if they're going to release that plan before this happens. I feel like maybe they're just going to continue to take a wait and see approach with all of this stuff. But, but so, yeah, if, if you talk about like the kind of exploding cases in Florida right now, I think that is the real concern is that there are going to be people living in Florida who are going to be coming in and out. Um, because for the players themselves, like as long as they're, they're staying inside of that bubble, they're, you know, they're getting tested before they go. They're getting tested after they get there. Uh, I believe they're quarantining for two days after they get there and um, undergoing multiple tests just to make sure that the virus hasn't penetrated the bubble before they get underway. Even um, even when family arrives, because family can arrive uh, for teams that make it to the second round of the playoffs. Even when family arrives, I believe to even get into the bubble, I'm pretty sure they have to get they have to have two negative tests before they can enter the bubble, and then they get quarantined for two. So listen, they're t- they're taking the precautions necessary to ensure, for the most part, that bubble is not being penetrated by the virus. But again, as you mentioned, you know I was mentioning uh, the raging numbers right now in Florida and across the U.S. You mentioned those staffers at Disney that uh, will be able to leave the bubble and come back. You know, I assume they'll be getting tested every time they come back or they'll be getting screened, but all it takes is one. Yeah, screened. They won't be getting so there tested. You go. They're, getting, they're getting temperature checks, which is... There you go. All- I think, as we know, it's not like, you, like you'll catch maybe two-thirds of right. potential cases that way, which is... But all you need is one asymptomatic COVID-positive person to come back in that bubble. And I know they're going to do their best to keep them away from players, but I, I think it's as close to foolproof as a bubble could have been created given the sheer number of people that are going to be in there. But foolproof is not bulletproof. And right. there are still concerns here. And like, there are some confusing things too. Like, you know, the players are getting tested every day. So for the most part, you'd know whether they're COVID positive or not. And they're going to be breathing and sweating on each other during the games. But then they can't play doubles ping pong because they can't stand beside each other, uh, you know, at a ping pong table. Like there are so many things like that. Like I, I don't know. I guess I understand the fact that like, why not just take every precaution possible when they're not actually playing basketball? Uh, But it does seem a little silly to me that you're allowing them to breathe on each other, sweat on each other, and play essentially a contact sport for a couple hours a night because you're trusting the fact. Well, we're testing them every day. Like. But then it's like, oh, by the way, uh, separate a little more of the ping pong table, please. Like, I mean, I, I mostly agree with that. Like, I do think it's sort of silly. But at the same time, you know, the fact that you're exposing them to risk in one area, I don't think is necessarily a justification for just throwing caution to the wind altogether. So I understand if you have a chance to mitigate the risk in whatever way, then why not do it? And... are players going to be adhering to all these guidelines? That's what I'm not entirely sure of. Like, are are players going to be utilizing this anonymous hotline? The snitch line. (laughs) To to snitch on other players who are breaking protocol? 
I tend to think probably not. There's there's also um, this uh, detail about players uh, having the option to wear these health monitoring rings. It's like a wearable device uh, that I believe uses body temperature and uh, heart rate to kind of just provide like a general wellness check and let you know whether you are at high risk uh, of contracting the virus or whether you're vulnerable to it or whether you may have it. There's that. There's also uh, the option to wear like an alarm that will go off if another player wearing the alarm is, you know, spending more than five seconds. Another another human, not even another player, just anyone else in the bubble. Right, right, right. Um, And I think what I saw in the the athletic report um, from Shams Charania and Sam Amick was that it's optional for players to wear those alarms, but for all other personnel, it's mandatory. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So again, like I think these are all, you know, the the league is doing pretty much everything it can to ensure a a safe environment. And it's also seemingly doing what it can to make sure that it's taking care of players' mental health. Whether that is, I mean, this players-only lounge, spa treatment, Manicures and pedicures, movie screenings, DJs. Yeah, I don't know about these DJs, but <laughs> like, um, um, I believe there is going to be obviously doing everything it can to make sure that the players are going to be like comfortable and have enough to keep them entertained and not go crazy. And I believe they are going to have access to um, whether it's like a mental health professional in the bubble or uh, like remotely. I think I'd seen that as well, which is important because I think we mentioned that last week or a couple weeks ago that that's kind of the untalk the. The underlying thing here that everyone's ignoring is that, you know, mental health is going to be very fragile, you know, depending on how long you're in that bubble and your and and your frame of mind when you enter the bubble. And in terms of all the amenities, look, like, I get that it's very easy for people to say, like, well, it's not like they're in a small area, like the Disney campus is huge and they've got all these amenities there. The players have nothing to complain about, even if they're stuck there for three months. And I think that is a very, very naive point of view in general but especially naive when you're talking about pro athletes like if you look at it as well they have everything in the bubble they don't need to leave then you're very naive to the lives that pro athletes live like seriously because they are not used to being told to stay in any well well, forget pro athletes i mean anybody like what what person is going to be jazzed about essentially having to stay in one place that is I don't know, like like a few mile radius right. essentially for like two and a half months. Right. Nobody is used to that. No, the there's they're going to go stir crazy at some point. At least some will, because again, different personalities, different frames of mind. Some people go more stir crazy. Some people might be able to handle it better. One thing I think is going to be really interesting is in terms of the in game stuff. You know, I think one of the guidelines, like they're they're trying to tell players, you know, don't lick your uh, fingers during the game. Don't wipe. Uh, the ball with your jersey like those are things that are very much easier said than done when you're talking about little in-game ticks and habits that pro athletes have developed over years and and decades of of playing high-level sports like I think of Serge Ibaka kissing the ball sometimes after free throws okay maybe that's a little easier to just curb but like Chris Paul and Kyle Lowry especially you'll see um, lick his fingers sometimes during the games when he's running the offense, like <laughs> the athletes go into, especially athletes at that level, they go into a kind of like competitive 
autopilot in a way that I think is very tough to disrupt. And yeah, it's muscle memory. Exactly. It's muscle memory. And I think from their perspective, it's tough to remain in the zone they need to be in if they also have to be conscious of anything other than the task at hand. You know, like that's why you'll often hear, um, not often, you'll always hear athletes talk about how the field or the court or the ice is like their escape in a way because they get so zoned in and focused on the task at hand that like small trivial things just aren't matter. It don't matter at that point. And I find it hard to believe a player can stay in that zone while also being conscious of like, Oh shit, I forgot. I can't lick my fingers. I just did. Oh damn. You know, like to be at the level they're at, you can't, you can't have those disruptions from that competitive autopilot muscle memory. And I think that'll be a really interesting thing, at least early on to see how that works, you know, because I think you are going to have instances where you're going to see players almost like catching themselves doing something they're not supposed to be doing that was harmless up until four months ago. Yeah, I mean, pro athletes are creatures of habit as much as anything. And I mean, you think of just like a player's free throw routine, for instance, and like Steph Curry with like the mouth guard hanging out of his mouth. Or like you said, you know, Kyle Lowry licking his fingers before he takes a free throw. Like, I think any disruption to that could be a real psychological block. I think, remember with with Russell Westbrook, how during his free throw routine, after he took the first one or like before he took it, he would he would sort of like walk back out essentially to like half court and then come back and take the free throw. And then the NBA changed the rules so that like he wasn't allowed to like leave the free throw area because they were trying to taking the second free throw the game up yeah and his free throw percentage tanked Mm -hmm. and i I don't know if you can draw a direct correlation between those two things but like there's a reason that these players all have these kind of intricate free throw routines because it gets them into a certain rhythm and a certain mindset uh can calm them down in a lot of cases because it is something you can always sort of return to that is very familiar and that muscle memory like it puts you in a certain frame of mind that brings a sense of constancy and comfort. And I think you're, I think you're right to point out that like without that, and if players have to change their routines in any way, I mean, that is a not insignificant disruption. Yeah. I, I don't remember now if we mentioned this on air, or if we were talking about this off air before we got on, but it, like some of the quirky things in the health and safety stuff, playing cards. So, you know, those who don't know, NBA players love to play cards. They played on the planes. They played on the buses, they gamble a lot uh, on those games, but the NBA obviously realizing this actually put in the the health and safety guidelines, like how to is how to play cards safely. And one of the things is at the end to discard the pack of cards after every single game. And I think they even put a note in the guidelines about how like, don't worry, we have plenty of packs of cards for your state, which as I was saying to you off air, I realized that in the grand scheme of things right now, wasting paper and like wasting cards maybe isn't top of mind at the same time like am i the only one who thinks it's absolutely ridiculous that they're just gonna have players play one game of cards and throw a pack of cards away like multiple times a day for two and a half months is there not some system they can come up with where they clean the pack like i don't know i was reading through all that and that's one of the things that stuck out to me like how does this make sense yeah, I don't know. And that's a, another one of those things where it's like, okay, yeah, you have players who are all touching the same playing cards, and maybe that's not the most sanitary thing. But again, compared to them breathing and sweating on each other for like 48 minutes at a time in an enclosed space, it doesn't seem to be as much of a risk. But 
again, I guess, you know, the, the risk inherent in the game of basketball is unavoidable. So uh, wherever they can find risk that is avoidable, I guess they're going to try and eliminate it. Another thing I think that is uh, sort of important is that they're they're not doing like the deep nasal swab, right? which if you've seen that test administered, I'm fortunate enough to not have had that test administered, but I know people who have, and I've seen it done and it looks and sounds just like an awful experience. So they're doing instead like a, a shallow nasal swab and an oral swab which just seems a whole lot more tolerable, less invasive, less uncomfortable. Because if they were getting that deep nasal swab every single day, that would be freaking brutal. Um, I guess the question I have is like, and again, I, I, I only know what I've read about this, but it does seem like those deep nasal swabs are the most accurate tests. And so maybe they can just make up for that with like the abundance of testing that they're going to do where even if there is a false negative or a false positive, eventually they're going to be able to just test enough uh, that they'll be able to root out the the true positive cases. But, but I do think like if they were doing that deep swab, then it would have been tough for the players to undergo testing every day. Yeah. My question is how do I and, or we go about getting the less invasive test? If we have to test, like, can we can we just tell the tester we work in NBA media and be like, well, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. So I, I, have you like, have you thought about getting it tested? I have. Yeah, I have. Um, you know, like I've got uh, my grandfather's in a long-term care home right now. We haven't, we've done Skype with him, but we haven't seen him in since early March or late February, whatever it is. Like, you know, if we're able to see him sometime soon in a controlled manner, like I'd probably want to be extra careful and go there knowing that I'm negative as opposed to just hoping, um, you know, it, we're sitting here in Toronto, Ontario, where the curve has started to go down and, and things are starting to open up. Not saying I'm going to rush out to do anything irresponsible, but at the same time, if, if I am going to start getting together in larger groups, you know, I might um, feel more comfortable if I and others have been tested. So yeah, I, I definitely think sometime soon I will, you know, bite that bullet and, and get a nasal swab swab stuffed so far up my nose that it tickles my brain i think i'm right yeah i think i think i'm just about there yeah i'm, I'm sort of in the same place because uh, my grandmother is at like a long-term care facility and you need to get a test uh essentially if you want to go visit there so and, and i just like i i feel like i'm particularly squeamish when it comes to that stuff like i don't know that anybody feels good about having stuff shoved up their nose but like i don't know it's uh it's tough for me to get over that psychological hurdle. So definitely if there is some way for us to get like the less invasive swab, I want to find out what that is. Yeah. Who do you, who do you think's making the first call to the snitch line? Is it Chris Paul? <laughs> I mean, Chris Paul is definitely the most obvious uh, one, right? Like uh, if ever there was a stickler for the rules. I said it would be uh, Mike Budenholzer calling a snitch on the Raptors for sneaking Drake into the facility and then realizing it was just Fred Van Vliet. <laughs> We could probably do a whole podcast where we just like unpack the many different potential scenarios involving that snitch line. Maybe that'll be our next episode. Yeah. But yeah, Chris Paul, both given that he's a stickler for the rules, given that he is a president of the Players Association, and maybe just feels like it's his responsibility uh, to make sure that everything's running smoothly and safely, 
uh, I feel like he would have to be the guy, right? You want another humdinger of a question? <laughs> Hit me. Over under how many games after this Kyrie Irving plays for the Brooklyn Nets? 0.5. Over. For sure. For sure? I mean, I guess not for sure. Nothing is for sure. But, I mean, what's your argument for the under? I don't know, man. <clears throat> Kyrie's an interesting dude. If he's like left the group chat and if he feels now like disconnected from his teammates, if he thinks they were either throwing him under the bus or snaking him, like mm-hmm. um, on top of everything else going on, like, I don't know. I, I, I would not be shocked. So you think <laughs> that it would be him who's sort of forcing his way somewhere else as opposed to the Nets deciding that they were ready to move on from him? Maybe a little column A, a little column B. I just kind of think that until, like, he hasn't played any games with KD yet. It was sort of a package deal when they went there in free agency. I just can't see, before they've even had a chance to play together, either he or the Nets deciding that it's time to part ways. So I I would feel pretty comfortable taking the over, but I mean, I I don't know what's going to happen. Like, there's still so much uncertainty surrounding the NBA for the rest of this season, for next season and in the foreseeable future. So uh, I'm not uh, really into making any predictions right now because I truly just don't know. Another sort of element of this, the the, the health and safety plan, uh, the bubble, all of this is the coaching, the coaches association and their response to what they feel is uh, the potential for age discrimination, uh, the potential that given an assessment of some of their medical histories and the ages of some of the coaches. You know, I think Mike D'Antoni is 69. Popovich is over 70. They're concerned. I mean, they put out a statement basically saying that they feel for a coach to not be permitted to enter the bubble would jeopardize their future employment in the league. Um, Do you agree with that? Um. If we're talking about those specific coaches, maybe not, but I do agree that it could have an adverse effect on on maybe hiring practices. Like maybe the thing is, I think it would be very rare that a team in this day and age would hire a coach sixty five and over anyway, right? But you know, I suppose there is a chance that uh, or a possibility that you know there's an opening and the best coach for the job is an older coach who is over 65 and I don't know if if um if that candidate is negatively affected in any way by the memory of this or GM's thinking well you know, given the state of the world do we really want someone this old coaching us uh we're living in a time of pandemic concerns like I don't know I, I think it's possible and and while I think it's unlikely I think you know from the coaches association's perspective they got to protect their own and if they think you know it even moves the needle in the wrong direction an inch, they got to fight against that that inch. Um, this was the statement that the coaches association said to Woj and Zach Lowe. Uh, Adam and the NBA have created a situation in Orlando that is likely far safer than in our coaches' home markets. Absent a significant threat, we believe a coach should be able to understand and assume their individual risks, waive liability, and coach in Orlando, which. You know, fair enough. And I, I, it seems like like players, coaches, any, anyone who's entering the bubble is going to have to sign a waiver, right? Yeah. So I think 
on the one hand, the league does have a certain responsibility to protect its employees. And I, I'm not saying that like anybody who wants to should just be able to sign a waiver and, and take on that risk themselves. Like I do think there's like a, a responsibility that the league has to keep people safe. And if they, they do feel like one of their employees has like, like a significantly elevated risk of dying if they contract COVID, then, I mean, I don't know how I would feel about it. I think that they probably maybe should step in and intervene and make sure that that person doesn't enter the bubble. That's, that's how I feel about it. I can also understand it from, from an older coach's perspective, feeling like that's not fair and that like they should be able to make that decision for themselves. And ultimately, you know, maybe they do feel safer inside that bubble than they would just like staying at home and going about their daily lives, you know, in a less sterile environment where they're not being tested every day. But um, I don't think it's that simple, I guess. It's not. And, and this is another instance where I think mental health comes into it as well. Like, uh, you know, I don't want to speak for any of these coaches. I don't know them like well enough to know what their mental state of mind is. But, you know, I don't know. Take Mike D'Antoni. We've spent years and basketball fans know his long journey to try to get to the top um, and, and win a championship. Still has never been to the finals. He's 69 years old now. You know, he has a team that I don't think any of us think is getting to the finals. But it's not impossible that they could get there. They have the star power. Like, I don't know. It, a, is it any less safe uh, for him to be in that bubble than it would be like they're saying in his home market? B, what about like from a mental health state of mind? You know, what would it be for a, a guy like Mike D'Antoni, a basketball lifer who probably thinks he's close to the top? And if he has to sit at home and watch it unfold and and be separated from like... There are so many factors at play. Again, like you said, it's just, it likes virtually everything related to this restart. It's not that simple. And right. again, I think I think a lot of people get caught up in like supporting one player or, or one team or one whatever the case may be. Okay, this is the this is the standpoint I agree with. This is the legion of players that I want to support. And it's like, well, what about these other players? Are they like less worthy of your support because? the player you like more thinks this way it's you have to be reasonable and i think essentially you know what we've been saying this entire podcast is there aren't really any right or wrong answers here like there's just there are so many mitigating circumstances and so much uncertainty and like we've been saying so many reasons to want to go and play and participate and so many reasons not to that I think we just have to listen, recognize where people are coming from and understand and respect people's feelings one way or another. Absolutely. You mentioned there's no right or wrong answer. Like I, I'm fully aware that when it comes to trying to play in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century, in the middle of perhaps the most profound social movement in a lot of our lifetimes, that a lot of the answers probably are wrong. You know, there are probably more wrong answers than there are right ones, but I don't know what the right ones are. So it's like, oh, who am I to judge which side the players come out on? Right. And so maybe we can just leave it there. I don't know, unless you have, have anything else no. you want to add. But I think the only thing we didn't mention, and not really worth getting that deep into, but it seems like the Pistons have hired Troy Weaver, the Thunder's assistant GM, as their new GM. Just another, you know, the Pistons have, have tried to kind of rebuild things and and... Um, restart things a bunch since their glory years there in the early to mid 2000s and it's never really worked out 
you know, other than a small blip here or there. So we'll see. I mean, that, that team is, that franchise is such a long ways away. If you look at the talent at their disposal and the market, just everything. Yeah. So, I mean, they haven't won a playoff game in over a decade. A game, not a series. Not a, not a series. Not a practice. A game. They haven't won a game in, I, I think, since 2008. Is that right? They got swept in 2009. Yeah, two, sure. 2008 is correct because they made they played the Celtics in the East Finals that year. The Celtics had to beat them to win the title that year. Yeah, right. And then the next year was when they traded Billups for Iverson. Yeah, um, wound up getting swept in the first round by the Cavs. And then I don't even know how many times they've been back to the playoffs since then. Maybe twice, once or twice. And yeah, I'd say two or three times, but they 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 haven't won a game. Yeah, it's been. By the time next playoffs roll around, it will have been 13 years since they won a playoff game. Yeah, I mean, it's not... So, like, Troy Weaver has a, a good reputation. Like, he's, I think he's been part of that OKC front office for a while. Yeah, because apparently and... he was... Sorry, I, I was reading that he was, um, he was, like, one of the leading executives in the t- uh, that pushed to draft Westbrook. So he's definitely been there a while. Right. Um, so I guess that is certainly, as far as talent evaluation goes, a mark in his favor. But it's just, I mean, we talked about this a little bit on the last episode where we were talking about like the eliminated teams and trying to find a sense of hope or optimism for those teams. And I think we both kind of agreed that the Pistons were the hardest team to find a sense of optimism for just because there's not... Pistons and the Hornets, I'd say. Yeah, there's just there's not a ton for them to build with right now. It is a, a positive sign, I guess, that they're going to finally have some financial flexibility starting this summer uh, because they got off of that Andre Drummond contract. I mean, Blake Griffin's still there, making you know close to eighty million dollars for the next two years, and we don't really know what state he's going to be in. He's had now four knee surgeries, and it's just. It's just unclear if he can be a meaningful contributor at this point in time. And also, like, it's an open question what they're going to be able to do with that financial flexibility. Like, the Pistons have never been a free agent draw. This obviously is a very watered-down free agent market coming up. And I think, you know, the player Christian Wood was probably their best player this past season, and he's about to become an unrestricted free agent. And also, I don't know how how willing that front office is going to be to tie up its cap you know, with a long-term deal after essentially after several years of being in cap hell are finally seeing some of it loosen up. Also not sure if you saw, but the night, uh, the day that the format was announced and, and the Pistons, I guess, realized that they were not going to be part of the restart. Christian Wood tweeted, I just want to win or something like that. Or I want to win, which like, he's not going to have the most leverage. Like, I don't think it's not like he's going to be able to pick his spot and, sacrifice money to go to a contender because you know he needs to secure a contract but i do think that's interesting certainly just a ton of work to be done there and uh, i mean hiring a lead basketball decision maker is where you have to start and uh i'd say you know troy weaver definitely has his work cut out for him and we'll just have to wait and see how that goes but for now i think we can call it quits on this episode and we'll reconvene to talk sometime in the near future when, I mean, for one thing, we're approaching the opt-out deadline. So maybe that will be 
that's like an, an important cutoff point, I suppose, where we'll have uh, a sense of clarity, at least about who's actually going to be staying home and who's going to be participating. That opt-out deadline is June 24th in six days. Yep. So probably uh, we'll talk to you guys again around then to assess some of this stuff once a little bit of the smoke and the dust is cleared. But for now, we're signing off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Thank you.